Welcome to Black People Talking. I'm your host, Jennifer Mabry, and my guest today is two-time Emmy and Grammy-winning comedian Kathy Griffin. Her recent stand-up special, A Hell of a Story, chronicles the fallout Griffin encountered that threatened to end her career after posting a controversial photo of Donald Trump. Kathy, welcome to the program. First, I want to ask you how you're doing emotionally as we're now four and a half months into the pandemic and you lost your beloved mother, Maggie, to dementia at the onset of the crisis. How are you? I'm certainly not the only one going through this. Um, What's what's difficult is I really was so close to my mom and don't have a lot of relatives, don't really have any family. I have one brother and we have kind of a strange relationship, but I really uh, had to accept it because we have no choice. And it's one of those stories where my mom mom had fallen into the depths of dementia. So you kind of have to say goodbye twice. And the reason it's so painful for me with my mom is granted she lived to be 99. The Griffins have genes apparently. It breaks my heart because as, as old as she was, her mind was everything. You know, she had that fast rapier wit and she always would say something weird and funny and unique. And it may be so sad to see her lose that first of all. And then, um, you know, when she went into hospice and like everyone's doing, you're FaceTiming, you're talking on the phone with folks and stuff. I'm grateful that she got a lot of tender loving care. And like everybody else, I, I don't even think I've processed yet the opportunity to have a memorial for her that I, I mean, I actually, in one of my specials, used to have fun talking about her memorial. If, by the way, if you're Irish Catholic, that's like, that topic is always on the table. So she would have all these things going, all right, Kathleen, I made a new list of things I want for my memorial. And I'd be like, mom, that's so weird. No, it's not. I would, I would like a punch bowl full of old fashioned. Like, okay, mom. She had her song picked out. And so we would sort of laugh about it. So, um, it means so much that folks reach out. And I love that people felt like they knew my mom, either through my life on the D list or my act. And I always say you did. She was truly unscripted, unfiltered. I'm grateful that I got to share her with anybody who, who wanted to, you know, tip a box of wine with her. She seemed like a lovely lady and, and you're right. Um, the intimacy of TV and the way that you brought her into your life, into your programs. I felt like I kind of knew her or wanted to know her, you know, <laughs> wanted yeah. to hang out with her. And does your humor, your funny, does that come directly from her? Because she does seem like she was oh, yeah. a, a character in a way that a woman of her time might not have always been allowed to be. Oh, I'm so gr- I'm so glad you said that because my mom and dad were so influential on me. And I, I finally reached a point in my life when I went, I don't know about everybody else, but I am absolutely a product of my mom and dad. Like it's I'm pretty much 50% my dad. And my dad was, he was, I always say, comedian funny. It could be funny on cue. And my mom was equally as funny, but she was a character. So the things that she would say as herself were equally as funny. And so I learned that that was not only fun to be around, but also it was a great sort of lesson. Whatever I got in the comedy department from them, and I'm always happy to give them credit. It's been nearly three years since you posted a photograph of yourself holding what looked to be a severed head of President Donald Trump. And of what ensued became a personal champion. <laughs> <laughs> became a, a personal and professional nightmare for you, but also a cautionary tale of the lengths to which the present occupant of the White House would go to protect himself while destroying others. Can you pick up the story from there and talk about what happened to you after that image went viral on social media and how that led to a hell of a story? Yeah, absolutely. It was a lesson. It was crazy. It was, that experience was the most extreme experience I've ever had in my life. It was 
you know, unprecedented at the time. And believe it or not, and I, I talked to many, many amazing First Amendment attorneys and I didn't want to be speaking out of school. By the way, I didn't go to college. You're, you have a doctorate. That I must do. be hard to get. This is about you, not me. So. Oh, sorry. I'm very dazzled by anyone who can stay in school. But anyway, at the time I thought, okay, this is super crazy. It felt like it was directly coming from the Oval, which at the time when I said that, people were like, you are crazy. And now we see he can, he'll do that to anybody and anyone. In my case, um, I was actually the first person in the history of the United States to be singled out by the president. You know, the car model daughter, Tiffany. I mean, let's just have a moment of silence. Anyway, um, I'm going to be your most embarrassing friend. Just get ready. And the machine that was put into place, I have never experienced anything culturally where an entire swath of the American public basically is acting like they're in a cult. I'm going to go with Scientology and somehow Donald Trump is their leader. I mean, even when I talk about it now, oh, you got to laugh, Jennifer. Doctor. Oh, I did a music sting. Huh? But I'm bummed. And so it's been uh, a real journey. And for me, there's still parts of it that seem so crazy. I can't wrap my head around. And honestly, thank God for comedy. And when all that was happening and the death threats and being investigated by the Par Department of Justice, being investigated by the Secret Service, being investigated, interrogated under oath when they were, you know, considering charging me with the crime of conspiracy to assassinate the president of the United States. Uh, you know, that actually happened to me. So now when you hear Trump talking about wanting to investigate this person or that person, I mean, Jesus, he's still trying to like investigate Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton because they're in that baby killing machine with Pizzagate and apparently Wayfair, a furniture store. So that was kind of my early exposure to, to his crazy like fan base. They're like invasion of the body snatchers. I'm not sure what's going on there, but it certainly um, made me re-educate myself and certainly more so on my beloved First Amendment. I realized one of the first things I had to do, and I, I, I'm going to be honest, it was on me. Everybody ditched me and everybody was scared. And obviously you're being investigated by the feds. It's, that's new for me too. But one of the first things I just wanted to do, and you know this very well, is I just, it was just important to me to just tell as many people as possible, you know, you may not like that photo or that video, and that's completely fine, but it is more than covered by the First Amendment. And here's why you actually do want that covered. You know, you certainly don't have to do anything as extreme as I did, but you also don't want the government going, okay, well, we were able to put Kathy Griffin away or, or whatever they had in mind. My whole thing is you're next. And I was right for all the ways I mishandled that situation. Look at the people that have followed in my not so fun footsteps. So um, it's every everything from you know, a, an ordinary person that couldn't possibly have the means or know-how or support to kind of go through it to, like I said, Barack Obama. The fact that it still goes on is also just something I, it's one of the reasons I, I, I enjoy still talking about it. You know, I mean, I can check my social media feed now and somebody from QAnon, don't even ask, is gonna, <laughs> you know, come up with some crazy theory and then they're gonna try to spread it and it does get spread. So whether it's the, you know, GRU buying robots or somebody's crazy aunt in Idaho, uh, it, it's, it got out of hand in a way that now is much more clear to the American public and frankly, the world. I mean, it's not just the Donald as he likes to be called, but it's that whole crowd. I will say I can get real discouraged about human beings and human nature, thinking that folks can be so easily uh, brainwashed or whatever you want to call it. And yet, like I said, thank God for comedy because I, I'm so lucky and grateful in, in pre-COVID world that even the president can't stop people from buying tickets. So I was able to go overseas, do my first world tour because if nothing else, that, that 
photo made me more famous than I've ever been. And that was very cathartic, very difficult. And then I came back to the United States and I think I was able to do like 30 cities or something like that, including the great Carnegie Hall. I've never been able to play Radio City myself. That was, that was a dream come true. It's been, it's just sort of been sorting out the, the, the good things that came out of it and the stuff that still goes on and gratifying to see, like, I no longer feel like the only, whether it's celebrity or comedian or obnoxious redhead going, I don't think this is right, you guys. Here we are. And I, I certainly won't stop. I can use whatever microphone I have to at least say, this was my experience. Nobody's disputing it. And if it happened to me, it means I really feel incumbent upon me. It's a responsibility to do whatever I can to make sure it doesn't happen to you. I'm grateful that someone like you would, would talk to me about my little film because this seems like ancient history. I mean, three years ago, compared to all this craziness. You had reposted that photo and there was no reaction to it. And I'm guessing that's because we're now in this place, we are over the cliff, right? So people really see. Does that feel like vindication for you? One of the things that I would get into arguments about with folks who are upset about my photo as this started happening was I would say, well, what about the, we have concentration camps down in the United States of America. There are brown people that are in concentration camps for no reason, except that a few old white guys don't understand or think they're better than brown people and their children and they're, and they're committing suicide. And I'm like, yeah, get the mask, put some more ketchup on it. So um, I, I'm sorry that uh, Americans have had to even go through all of this. And uh, I am, I do feel vindicated when anybody says, wow, I was upset about that stupid picture. Now look. And I'm like, yeah, that was a mask. These are real human beings. So um, I, I am, you know, I'm not going to be posting the picture every day or anything like that, but it sort of came time, I felt, for me to sort of repost that. And the response was overwhelmingly positive and uh, it was gratifying. And like you said, for me to just hear from folks all over the world and primarily probably in the United States and uh, hear, hear them say, you know, not, not like, oh, I, I made two people a deal. I apologize. Nothing like that. And by the way, Hollywood will never apologize and I'm still blacklisted and I don't have a day of work ahead of me before or after COVID. So, you know, whatever. So I'm a self-starter and that's what I like to do. But through comedy, there is a history of whether it's an image or a shocking thing or um, something that is appropriate for a time when as a comic you go you know what I can I can make a knock-knock joke or I can make a, a typical joke but sometimes you have to sort of do something that also shake people up. I do think one positive thing is a lot more folks at least even in, in my industry are getting more politically engaged by any means necessary is kind of where I'm coming from now because we're losing lives. We don't really have civil rights anymore. Um, I there are there's so many so many people in our in our citizenry that are not safe walking down the street that aren't safe around any kind of law enforcement they're not safe to go to the central park and look at birds i'm gonna keep ringing that bell so if you think i've learned to be softer no i'm i like to go i'm worse like when people go did you learn anything from that trump thing i go yeah be worse
you know, that, that, that makes me think of that, um, you know, that quote by Laurel Thatcher, well-behaved women rarely make history. I mean, I would think you'd wear that as a badge of honor. Absolutely. Being well-behaved never served me well, you know, shaking the apple cart. And I, if I, if I felt and feel like I have a legitimate reason to put something out there and if I can make you laugh at the same time, that's kind of what I can do. I've definitely become less fearful and more fearless because I don't want to say what more can they do to me. All right, there's a little of that. And to that point, I'm surprised to hear you say, and I've read this, so maybe I shouldn't be surprised, but that you are still facing a backlash in Hollywood. I know you couldn't find uh, a a home for um, this special. I'm wondering, you know, if you feel there's been any progress in the last 20 years, particularly with the advancement of women being in more executive positions. Okay, this, sorry, no. This is not a popular thing to say. I think it's important that women understand as you're enjoying your entertainment, whether that's streaming or films or television, to this day, there's not a single female who can single-handedly green light or write a check for a pilot, a film. You know, I I don't know Shonda Rhimes, but I think she's amazing. Shonda Rhimes can't green light her own show. She's got to go to, who is it, Bob Iger? One of those old white guys. And I say that because I know all those old farts. I've seen them at auditions. I've seen them at premieres. It's the same freaking guys that were there almost when I started. I think it's important to let women know it's still a real fight. And I think with women, there's this perception where um, some of these old white guys will try to tee it up or set the table as if Beyonce could have greenlit that project herself. And then I see Beyonce thanking Bob Iger. And I'm like, didn't he just get canned? You know, my, my dear departed friend, Joan Rivers, used to say, oh, you know, you could just take the heads off one and put them on another. It's all the same. And there's a certain freedom in her honesty. I, I really, at this point, I'm kind of tired of hearing men tell me that the women's movement has really progressed. And when you're a touring artist, you do a ton of like morning radio. And I call them pee-pee and cuckoo in the morning. And if I ever talk about this issue and sexism in the workplace, my workplace is comedy. There has been progress for women in this particular industry. Very little and very little in comedy, certainly in stand-up. My male counterparts get mad at me when I kind of bust them out on that. All the studios, the networks, you know, where where you would have placed a hell of a story are run still by white men. But there are female executives who aren't championing you. Because they'll get fired. And so what my sort of game, and this is funny, we're talking about my my mom, because one thing my mom taught me was to be beyond fiscally responsible. So uh, I have always... saved as much money as I can because I think that when you're a female in in an industry where you're a female once again it doesn't have to be comedy or Hollywood I have found it frankly helpful to mentally treat every job like it was my last every check like it was my last by the way it finally happened to me so with the Trump thing I didn't start I I stopped making money and all the old white guys who took 10% of all the millions I have made and I say that with pride I'm not gonna hide I'm not gonna be embarrassed of how much I've made over my lifetime I've probably Nor should you be. Yeah, right. And that's so that's what I try to do is just be a little a little teeny bit of an example. And I think that, in my opinion, the first step that women can do is, okay, this is not going to be popular. These guys, these white guys, they have to be shamed. They have to be shamed. They, They there's no they don't respond to anything else. And I'm happy to get in the gutter. You know, my joke, when, when Mrs. Obama says go, you know, they go low, we go high. I'm like, you know what, Mrs. Obama, have a, have a rest. I'm going to be down in the mud where I belong, rolling around because that's my sweet spot. But there's, there's something to women understanding what their uh, participation in this can be. And I do feel it's important that there's a sisterhood. And I, 
really see it very clearly. When you see a woman not have another woman's back, before you judge her, understand, I've seen it and I'm living it to this day. There's a coterie, although it's a handful, handful of the same old five to 10 white guys who decide every single television show you watch, every film that you get to see, everything that gets released and doesn't, everything that gets publicity and doesn't, because it's all dollars. It's also power. And I, I think it's quite clear to me, in my experience, I've had many, many men that made themselves feel better and more important by putting me or another woman down. And um, what I uh, feel strongly is at this moment, since I'm in no position to flick a switch and, and, and have pay equity in the workplace or uh, women still be able to be who they are and not have to have the boob jobs and you know be canceled when you're 29 and all this other stuff. Ladies, save your money. And whenever you can start your own projects, get other women to do projects with you, it's going to be a slog. It's not going to happen overnight. And no, there are forces that are not going to want you to do that. And they might work, as I experienced with the president, actually work to keep you down. So instead of going, oh, Kathy, that's the glass half you know, empty attitude on life. No, let it be your motivator. You know, I may do another, I was thinking about if I do another special, I might just do it for free. Just do it for free and go, hope you guys laugh, love you. Netflix isn't going to touch me. HBO is not going to touch me. It's just, you know, it's the same folks. I I'm surprised. Netflix? Really? There's not a woman that can green light anything there on her own or HBO or any of the networks or any of the cable outlets or Amazon. So I got on Amazon for this film because it did well. I not, I mean, it's not making a million bucks, but I'm so proud. I, this story is in 62 countries. I'm so proud of that. I just, anytime somebody will give me a chance to tell the story and if, if it can make you uh, somehow make sense of the craziness that's going on, I'm, go ahead, you know, learn from me, don't make my mistakes, whatever you want to take out of it. And I think um, for me, uh, having a career where I really focused on getting to a place where financially, if some white guy pulled the plug, mine happened to be the accidental president, as I call him, because it was an accident. He's not supposed to be the president, Jennifer, I'm just saying. Um, then in a way that was kind of the ultimate example. And I didn't think I was sort of preparing for this, but I think maybe I was preparing for this my whole life. And to me, the lesson I take is nobody can take the love of comedy away, nobody. And I just, if you can find what you love and somehow do it and make a living, it's, it's the biggest win ever. And I will always love comedy. And that's why, hey, I'd, I'd love to get a $40 million Netflix deal, but I'm not going to let it stop me. So if I make a special in my house during quarantine and you guys like it and laugh or whatever, then that's progress for me. And to that end, are you uh, writing? Are you working on something? Are you, and you know, what do you think about the fact that it might be two years before there's a vaccine or before, you know, theaters might want to, venues might want to open and have you, uh, you touring again, you know, that it might be a while. That is why I, I honestly, like, I'm so inspired by David, Dave Chappelle. And when he did that special in his yard, I was like, wait a minute, that's awesome. Like I can do a special in my house socially distance 10 good laughers or whatever we find is safest at that time. And that's who I want to reach. Like, you know, one of the things that makes me sad about being fired from CNN New Year's Eve was I was that person that just didn't want to go out and do New Year's stuff. And I wanted to like sit in bed and have somebody make me laugh, whether it was, you know, an old time movie marathon or whatever. And so 
I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I kind of had that experience because it put me in the mindset of who, who do you want to entertain at this time? Well, kind of like New Year's, I wanted to entertain the folks who chose to stay in for a myriad of reasons. And at this point, um, you know, obviously people want a distraction. They, uh, I, I mean, I'm thinking about doing a special that isn't a complete distraction, might have hopefully a little more meat on the bone um, or not, you know, I'm not sure. I could also do two specials. I could do one that's all shallow gossipy humor and I could do one that has a little sociopolitical edge to it. And, you know, I'm definitely working on that stuff and I'm always writing. And, um, you know, in the meantime, by the way, I'm also pitching other shows. I mean, I'm out with a show with these three other guys and we're going the conventional way and pitching it to conventional networks and cable outlets and, and streaming services. And if that happens, great. But I'll be honest, I don't bank on that stuff anymore. I say, okay, what can I do that nobody can say no to if it's good? If it's not good, that's great. But guess what? You know real fast when you're a convict. People don't laugh or in this environment, people don't watch. And so I, you know, you people made a mistake by liking this film because darn it, I'm going to do something else. And I, I, it's, it's important to me. And like I said, I'm going to be 60. So I wouldn't have said this when I was struggling in 18 or 19 or 20 or younger. Uh, it's okay for me to just put something out and hope people like it. And if I can do that, if I can give somebody an hour of comedy and distract them or, um, you know, give them a laugh and maybe they're social distancing with two other, you know, I'm sorry, they're quarantining with two other people and they can sit around a laptop computer. I don't, that's fine. I don't, you know, I started in television. Um, this thing was lucky enough to go into theaters and then now I get to talk to you. So I kind of like, okay, I've got a little encouragement that if I can put something out there and it makes people laugh, it's, it's a, it's a gift. Who wouldn't, you know? Absolutely. I also thought about you, you know, during the primaries, and I'm just wondering if, um, like you, there were other women signaling that, that this president was unfit. You certainly were, but certainly Hillary Clinton did. And then I think during the primaries, you know, like Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris. I mean, what are your thoughts about Americans ignoring women who are sounding this alarm? And also, what are your thoughts about the fact that the uh, Democratic presidential nomination process, you know, started out with 21 people reflecting the United States, and then somehow it came back to yet another older white male. Okay, I'm just gonna, because it's just us two, I'm just gonna go there. Here's my, here's my point of view about that. First of all, listen to women. You know, they were right. Okay, go ahead and fact check all the women that you thought were too bossy. And I don't know about you, but I would hear, I of course get into the fights with you know, guys that didn't want to vote for Hillary and they didn't like Trump, but, you know, and I'd say, well, what is it about Hillary? And they would always go this, you know, there's just something. Okay. That's called sexism, honey, and misogyny. That's why you can't like put a finger on it or you can't say what you are uncomfortable, you know, and then look what we got, you know? So as far and, as- And not just men though, let's say the 53% white women too, who-, who Okay. Who I'm didn't. not talking to white bitches. Let me just say that right now. I- I, Karen needs to sit down and sit down in a stadium full of seats. And so that was, I'm not gonna, that, that hit me like a dagger. Like my inner white liberal feminist self was like, girls, like I just, I still look like you look into the universe of American women and go, what the F were you thinking? I'm gonna name drop a little more. I, I reached out to Gloria Steinem. <laughs> I think I like was mad. I was like, what, what, what's going on with feminism and women? What's the point if 53% of white women voted for Trump? And I said, and you know, this is educated women, okay? This is not just a bunch of toothless people at the rally. Um, I'm sorry, teeth optional. 
she's optional. And she said something really interesting. And she said, you know, she talks like very mellow like this. And she's always very calm and you know, with the glasses and the Harley Davidson belt. And she said, you know, women get colonized too. And it doesn't matter if their degree is from Ivy League school, you know, and she said in particular, and she was kind of ruminating and she said, you know, in particular, I can see a scenario, unfortunately, where a lot of very highly educated white women have not used their degree and have chosen for their own reasons to be a stay at home mom. And she said, you know, they become colonized. And I'm like, wow, I never thought about that. Like, I guess I think about anybody getting colonized. I think about them being in some, you know, like I said, it's almost like when you're, when you're someone that could be easily walked into a cult, <laughs> which we've also seen. And I thought, yeah, I guess so. Only because I may not know a lot about that women, you know, I didn't even go to college, but I know a lot about that freaking guy. I know that husband. I know the husband who either went to an Ivy League school or is intimidated that the wife did. And hopefully she may have chosen to stay at home and hang on his every word. But I mean, let's cut the crap. I know a lot of women that believe everything your stupid husband says, and they're white. And <laughs> they think it's okay. And they're trying to convince me of how great the husband is. And I'm like, honey, wrong girl, wrong girl. I'm not buying it. So that was a sad but enlightening thing uh, to learn. So now the good thing is we know what our job is in whatever way we feel is appropriate. And it's a very combative political environment, not, nothing like I've ever seen. And I do remember the Watergate hearings. I mean, I was a kid, but even then I was like, well, this will never happen in our lifetime. We have to learn a lot of new concepts, you know, and as once again, as a white woman, I am, I am shocked and frightened at the amount of racism coming from people I thought were cool. I also have to do a lot of self-examination about whatever racism I, I may have and Ugh, get it out. It's like, oh, it's like, a, it's like, I want like an exorcism if I have any. So the good news is I know a lot of white women who didn't vote for Trump. They're not, I don't know. If, I don't talk to them. I'll be honest. I don't, I don't have one friend who voted for Trump. I cut him out. I cut him out. You heard me vicious. They cut me out after the Trump thing. Screw them. And I no longer am that person that can say, oh, you know, my crazy uncle is allowed to say the N word and that he voted for Trump. And I'm just going to be like, oh, uncle so-and-so is so old. I'm not going to bother. I think white people have to be honest. We do know the Karens. We know who they are. And it's our job to take care of Karens. It's not yours. It's our job to talk to Chad. Because guess who Chad is? He's my cousin. Karen could be my aunt. We need to step up and stop acting like that's so difficult. It's not. We have a lot of work to do. And in, in a way, uh, I look forward to the challenge and the work. If I do another special, I'll try to touch on all the stuff because it skeeves me out to look at white people saying like, I don't, I never knew Karen existed. You did. She was at the, the barbecue, not the cookout. I'm not invited to the cookout. I may have brought raisins. I'm not going to, I get it. Certainly I can only speak for white women. We need to get real honest and take action. In a little way, I lived that when the number of women who turned on me after the Trump thing, women I just didn't think would turn on me in a million years. I don't know how much of a sphere base and how much of it is preconceived notions or like you said, the sexism from other women. I lived it. Women saying, you've gone too far. How dare you stay quiet? Stop mentioning that. How's that working for you is what I would say to those ladies. So I, I think it's, um, it's important that people understand when they can step up, understand when it's our responsibility to. And my job is to put the whole thing into a chaos blender and hopefully find some way to, to do it through humor or somehow we have to laugh to get through a lot of this stuff. 
So let me do that part <laughs> and I'll get in trouble seven ways from Sunday and that's okay. Well, Sorry, was, I don't remember the question. That, you, <laughs> that was the, well, that was the answer. But as we kind of wind down, I could talk to you all day. I wanted to know about New Year's Eve. A lot of people who were fans of yours were very disappointed about that. And from my understanding, Anderson Cooper never reached out to you. He's never apologized. Does that, <laughs> does that still hurt? I mean, do, sure. you know. I'm a, yeah, I'm a person. You know, I really loved him. Like, I loved him as a friend. I really loved him. And, you know, the other one who made that call was Jeff Zucker. I certainly wasn't the star of that show, and it wasn't a very good show, but I honestly loved that job. And it kind of put me on the map in that I was able to then go on and do my Bravo show, My Life on the D-List, which gave me the opportunity to, to do a show that I, I'm, I'm proud of to this day. It's just not lost on me that Jeff Zucker, who's always treated me like he was doing me a favor by hiring me, <laughs> Just as a businesswoman, that's not how you enter a business relationship. It's it's not uh, going to be prosperous for anybody in the long run. And it sets the table for a woman such as myself to feel like, am I ever going to be in or do I ever have any amount of job security? Because I want to also be honest about something. The boys club is alive and well. I mean, they have each other's backs. If I hear one more thing about all the Me Too guys that are getting help from the other guys in the industry, executives and other artists, uh, I didn't know how bad it was until one of them called me and said, can we help bring Louis C.K. back? You're asking me? It, it's a hard pass. I have no qualms now, as you can see, speaking truth to power. And Jeff Zucker is, he, he's just a wreck. He's a hot mess. Would you accept an apology from Anderson or is it too little too late? If he was truly I, sincere. He's not really in the apology game. <laughs> so I, I, I laugh when, when someone asks me that because I'm like, yeah, that's not his thing. People can get really lost in the like apology game. And my whole thing is I don't want an apology. I want a job. Well, if, what if they, uh, if he, if he apologized and or offered, <laughs> said, you know, hey, Kathy, we, we were wrong. We want you to come back. People want you back. I just, I, I love, I love the scenario. I love a, a world where very privileged white guys think they're wrong. They don't ever. I'm just saying they don't ever think they're wrong. Even if people tell them they, they're wrong, they're like, nope, not me. And so I can't even entertain that because I just don't think like that. We really and did like you. We really loved you on that gig too. I, I, I stopped watching once when that happened, you know, there was, there was a chemistry yeah. between between, between like so many other people you just the two of you had a chemistry and it it yeah. just wasn't the same afterwards so well thanks well Kathy I have 12 other questions I need to answer, ask you but I won't I'll save it for our another conversation when we yes. get to actually meet in person as we wrap I, I do want to ask you what you hope or think your legacy will be in comedy when I think about women comedians I think we all think about Joan Rivers, who was your dear friend, your mentor. I know how much you loved her. And I think about that special that you participated in that was on CNN about women in comedy and how few women comedians have really had a commercial success. Mm -hmm. in the way in the vein or the way that you and Joan have there's Carol Burnett of course Lucia Ball, Mom Cody Fields like that is you know that's one thing um in in my conversations with the late great Joan Rivers is you know she she would talk about sort of um the we would say the girls you know and we'd say what other what other girls are in x or categories either either the women that can be named you know known by one name only or the women that you know got in trouble like somebody like me i mean i if i even have a legacy i hope it's that i was funny and not afraid to shake things up 
And it's about as deep as that. But I do remember Joan saying to me one time at dinner that she was jokingly saying, so I'm not, you know, that she was saying something like, uh, everybody keeps saying you and Phyllis Diller, you and Phyllis Diller. And I think she said, Phyllis, like people forget, Phyllis was like 25 years older than Joan. The thing that I just like to say to, well, straight guys really can't handle it. But when I say name five female comics right now that are living and you can name them, they're famous. And I mean, stand up comics. I'm going to go with hopefully me, Wanda Sykes, Sarah Silverman, Chelsea Handler, who can stand, as Joan Rivers used to say, we would be a little snobby sometimes. And we'd say, look, there's girls that can do like comedy. There's men that can do like comedy. There's people that can stand alone on the stage at Carnegie Hall or the Sydney Opera House and command that audience until at the end of the performance, they're on their feet with no, no support, with nobody writing for them, with not a bunch of dudes behind them or giving permission to say whatever they want. And, you know, that's something we cherished. So I would, you know, I, I, I think it's important to look at those that went before us. Very important, very important. So it's very clear to me, the glass ceiling was broken by the women who, you know, I don't know if you saw the Moms Mabley documentary, uh, Whoopi Goldberg produced it, and um, I got to participate in it a little bit, but, you know, it, there's, it, I think it's important that we all keep that clarity, those who went before us, and I remember when I, I spent the day with Whoopi when she was making that film, she kept saying, respect must be paid, and I thought, yeah, because Moms Mabley couldn't ask for that respect in her lifetime, and I'm so glad Whoopi came along and to shine a light on, on her life and career and legacy, and I remember going to the premiere of that film in New York, and it was so great, frankly, hearing from the people who didn't know her story and got excited and wanted to look up her stuff online. And that's sort of the good thing about this crazy like internet world and someone's Insta-famous for five seconds, but who really has the chops? And I think it's okay to, to say, yeah, I can delineate. I, I wanna be somebody who has the chops. I write all my own material. I, I think it's fine if comics, well, I don't really think it's fine. I think they're kind of like fake comics. Sorry, uh, I'm getting really inside baseball here. I, I think it's asking that simple question. How many women, women of color, can you say they made a difference? They get to do what they want because boy, there's a lot of white guys that are coasting. If they make if they make 10 times what I make, then it's my job to say, all right, then let me do something even better. Let me do something even more unique. And if you like it, the ups and downs are so worth it. And I want to be a living embodiment of that. And whether it's this little low budget film or somebody that you see at, like you said, when we go back to venues or something like that, just look out for the women. Look out for the women, the women of color that are out there knowing they're going to get a tenth of the auditions that even I got. I think it's a nice reminder and it's a nice way to feel motivated and a nice way to kind of spread the word. And I, I do wish more women would support other women and I can play a part in that instead of complaining about it. I can get out there and, and sing these women's praises, you know, see if anybody else then goes, oh, I didn't know who that was, but now I watched them and, and I laughed as well. So I'm, I'm just kind of in this, certainly in this quarantine environment, like, going, okay, what little part can I play? And it's uh, pretty simple. Try to spread the word if you have something out there. If not, you know, leave them laughing when you're trying. Well, I want to thank you, Kathy Griffin. It's been a delight speaking you, to you today. And um, thank you for joining me, Jennifer Mabry, on Black People Talking. Thank Take you care. so much. I really appreciate it.